Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio-podcast. Hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopists, I meet with Anja Kepler from Uber Bioimaging and Global Bioimaging. And we chat about the recent explosion of new microscopy techniques and how Eurobioimaging is helping researchers access these. Eurobioimaging is an infrastructure, open access infrastructure that um, democratizes access for all researchers to finally get the services they need in imaging, such as access to the latest microscopes. We discuss her reaction after being told girls shouldn't learn chemistry. I also will become a chemist. And everyone went, no, 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 you are a girl. You should not do that. Also at home, I, I was a girl, no, not chemistry. And that um, made me quite stubborn. I'm not a stubborn person. Um, but in that moment, I decided I will study chemistry. We also discover her love of fishing and her early aspirations of being a skipper. But it's probably where I um, really got um, the first passion for being at the sea and uh, going for fishing and just being on boats and um, I think when I was about 16, 17 for a short period of time I was dreaming about um, making a license as a captain. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole and welcome to The Microscopist and today I'm joined by Antje Kepler, who's Director of Neurobioimaging. Antje, how are you today? Fine, absolutely fine. A little bit hot, but <laughs> that's the climate change outdoors. Yeah, it's, I, I think the temperatures in my office gets very hot and I, actually I didn't put my blind down, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bake by the end of this podcast, I think, but it sounds like you're hotter where you are. Yeah, it's uh, close to 37, 38 outside. It feels like... Uh, Sahara <laughs> as soon as you step in front of the imaging center but here inside we are spoiled um, because of the air conditioning um, they keep the instruments safe of course and we are benefiting so yeah. I think all the team is in these days I, I, we live in Britain which means that temperature half the people melt <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's the same here I mean we used to sing when will we have a real summer again about 10 years ago dreaming about warm sunny summers no one would sing that song anymore. I love the irony that people actually, yeah, they, they spend big money to go on a hot summer holiday, then they complain when the, sun, the hot <laughs> summer comes to them. But anyway, I take to your director of Eurobioimaging. Let, let's start for those who aren't aware. Hey, just a quick note here um, director of Eurobioimaging Biohub, because um, the director of Eurobioimaging Eric, that's John Ericsson. Okay. So, so. For you, bioimaging, uh, and a role within global bioimaging as well. Yes, yes. So, for those who are not aware, what is what what is Eurobioimaging? Let's start there. Eurobioimaging is an infrastructure, open access infrastructure that um, democratizes access for all researchers to finally get the services they need in imaging, such as access to the latest microscopes or also to those microscopes that they might have at home but are broken right now or out of business but also service support expert support um, they can call our team ask for advice if they have a certain research problem and they don't know yet what kind of imaging technology to use we will bring them in touch with the people working at the nodes in Eurobioimaging. Um, then we have image data services to offer a lot of training offers so anything a uh, if you need imaging and you don't know exactly what or where and how, um, or you just want to chat about imaging, um, Eurobioimaging is the place to go to. That's Eurobioimaging since um, many years for me. And this has a, a, it's a distributed network uh, across Europe. Yes. And um, go on. <laughs> yeah, um, so as you can see, I'm still very enthusiastic about Eurobioimaging after all these years. Um, right now, we have 150 individual imaging facilities that call, can call themselves being part of Eurobioimaging, being part of a Eurobioimaging node. And they come together in those so-called Eurobioimaging nodes. So some of our nodes have up to 15, 16 individual imaging facilities. 
Other nodes are much smaller, just covering one or two facilities. And um, currently they are hosted by 14 different countries in Europe, so all the way from the north, the Scandinavian countries uh, to the Mediterranean. And is that number growing? If that number is increasing, yes. So um, we have a few nodes in the pipeline, so you might want to watch out for the news coming from Eurobimaging in the next days. Um, and we are very much looking forward to raise our glasses then together with the um, successful applicants. And yes, this con process is continuing because um, as we all know, imaging is, has been on a revolutionary track for the past decades, and this will not stop soon. Um, and therefore, if we want to provide really good, excellent services to the incoming researchers, we also have to look at ourselves all the time and bring on board new facilities, bring on board new technologies and services, but also maybe disseminate um, or get rid of those that are not requested anymore when it comes to technologies. I think, I think, I think again, it is the microscopy, so we can talk microscopy, but it's a lot, actually a lot of technologies in the scientific world. They've had an explosion and microscopy has been exceptional in the explosion of techniques and the advancement over the last 20, 30 years. I would say even 20 years, it's really made big changes. And from my recollection, newer bioimaging started because some of this kit was costing a lot of money and you couldn't have a microscope that cost that much in every university. So it made sense to try and create this philosophy that people could go and visit those sites. But the price has not gone up much. But now I would say the strength of Eurobioimaging, you said you have 150 different sites that are part of Eurobioimaging, is that the proliferation of niche techniques. And if you're a scientist, you, there may be a technique close by that's good, but there may be a better one that's best served. And I think the strength of Eurobioimaging going forward will be that it doesn't matter what niche technique you want to get access to, there will be a site you've got access into. I, I think it's kind of morphed into being maybe six big sites into lots of sites because the proliferation is just huge. Yeah, and in addition, um, having the same machine in one environment, let's say in France in one facility and having the same machine in uh, Czech Republic in a different facility can be two worlds for the researchers they can access to because of the surrounding expertise, the surrounding other services that are provided. It could be exceptional, for example, neurobiology and services for one super resolution microscope um, in comparison to another one that is located in Vienna or Prague. And I think this is really what the researchers are looking for. They are looking not for an instrument, and again, they are alone by themselves. They are really looking for the quality managed expertise they get together with the access to the instrument to acquire image data. So. Okay. I think what the people benefit or the researchers will benefit from in neurobiomaging is they get reliable, fair image data they can trust. It might not maybe bring always the result that they were hoping for, but they can trust the data and they have it quick instead of asking for the investment money, um, putting the um, microscope into their lab, learning how to use it. And then they have to learn image data management, image data analysis, you name it, or the pipeline. But in, um, by accessing imaging core facilities, and this is true for all core facilities, they are really on the fast track to data they can really use and trust. And Eurobiomaging is just bringing it to the next level that we have called for all these cores out there that want to become part of a European infrastructure to be open beyond their local user community, but reach out to researchers coming in with new applications they might not have access had to until now reaching us out to their colleagues learning from each other so there are also a lot of benefits for the course coming into Eurobiomaging by uh, offering access together and working together on the imaging technology revolution and as i said you know microscopy is one technique that has seen this type of explosion uh, of technologies in both the advancement, the cost, uh, the enabling and the proliferation of techniques. Mass spec similarly has done the same, but I'm not aware of a similar push in the mass spec community. Why is microscopy or imaging, because there's MRI involved in this too, 
why 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 imaging so actually we do have mass spec imaging now in neurobiomaging as a proof of concept and it actually is the most requested technology uh, among our proof of concept technologies so there is a push also for that one um, but in general why imaging um, I think it brings us back to the seeing us believing argument that imaging is present in all research domains in the life sciences and also in the neighboring sciences so we are now also um, in communi close communication with the material sciences because it's really coming together interdisciplinary. And um, yeah, it goes all the way into the environmental sciences. Um, we are right now preparing for the global bioimaging event in Montevideo, Uruguay later this year. And the topic there will be impact of imaging. And the topics that are high up on the agenda because they were brought in by our global partners, international partners, are in the environmental sciences. So how imaging, for example, helps understanding the importance of biodiversities in the Amazonas region, or how imaging in the life sciences benefits tackling climate change by developing underwater microscopy, which is done at the Imaging node in Israel. And these are things that usually we don't think about it in the first minute when we think about the imaging technologies in the life sciences. But um, I, I think this is our mission now in neurobiomaging as well as global bioimaging, telling the story that imaging is needed for many challenges that we are facing also as societies out there. And we want to make it visible because it's happening. It's not a question that we have to invent it or push it. It's there. It's just that we are not so good yet in telling our stories. And we're trying to to make a difference there. So just go, I'm going to take you back a step now. So you're director of the Eurobiomaging Hub. Uh, that right? That's right, yes. Biohub. <laughs> yes. Uh, but you started your career as a biochemist? Yes, I um, started um, studying biochemistry at the University in Bochum. And um, yeah, by some chances, I ended up in the bioorganic chemistry department where I did my diploma thesis. And that was in the lab of a young PI at the time, uh, Kai Jonsson. And uh, he got an offer at the end when we were finishing our diploma to um, continue his own uh, work at the EPFL in Lausanne. And he invited us um, if we're interested to do the PhD there. And I said, yes, <laughs> let's go. I mean, that's uh, not always that you have the offer to, to work in Switzerland for some years. And um, yeah, this is, so at the beginning, um, I still did a lot of hardcore biochemistry work, Western blotting, cloning, you name it. Um, and it was about phage display and directed evolution, screening. Um, so the usual buzzwords that were around in the late 90s, early 2000s. But somehow um, my PhD topic was not super well defined. And then one morning Kai came into the lab and said, Antje, now we do something different. I was like, okay, we're labeling the AGT. I said, we're doing that. Biotin structure within every day, Western blood by lunchtime ready. Um, so <laughs> we already had our routine. No, 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 this will be different. Instead of streptavidin, we use fluorophore. It's like, okay. Let's use a fluorophore. And we started with fluorescein and yep. continued Western blotting. <laughs> but that was the start of the snap tech. We call it AGT labeling in the very beginning. Um, and it was only 156 Western blots later that we used it in imaging in cells. Because it took us a year at that time um, to find a Leica SP2 mm. and a cell culture next to it and an expert next to it. That would help the organic chemists um, to try their labeling on real cells and not just yeast cells and Western blotting. And I actually, I personally will never forget this very first day because we had no protocol yet. Um, I just had experience with the yeast cells. Um, and I thought, okay, let's maybe do it a little bit by intuition how much label you put into the um, cell solution, how much, um, how long you incubate the cells. But it worked immediately. So the AGT labeling, or better known as SnapTech these days, was super easy. 
it was really robust message from day one onwards. And this personally, I'm so convinced about Eurobiomaging because it took me that year of Western blotting because of not having access to a microscope and cell culture. I love the fact you know, was it 156? It was 156, you said? Yes, Western blots. <laughs> I love the fact you counted them. <laughs> yeah, it was about um, specificity to, to really demonstrate. It's only the AGT that's labeled, then uh, demonstrating that our um, labels were going through the yeast cell wall into the cell and then specifically labeling the AGT and then increasing the speed. So we wanted, we, as we were a lab for directed evolution at that time, we made it faster and faster and um, or more efficient. And uh, that was 156 Western plots. And, and it's interesting, so I, I don't know what year that was. I'm presuming late 90s. Yeah, it was 2001. Oh, see, one year later, you could have just come and used us. Yeah. <laughs> we, had the, we have the culture facilities, we have the microscope. And, but it's amazing, it was only back really at the start of the millennium, I guess, that core That's facilities cool. started to spring up in very small numbers. Uh, including EMBL, obviously, with Stefan's uh, and uh, Ryder Peppercock and what they set up as an open access and service type provision. But you're right. Otherwise, you'd have needed to know someone who had it that was happy to collaborate. Yes, indeed. I mean, we were lucky then. And uh, from then on, when because it worked so beautifully, it was a lot of cloning for me, uh, different fusion proteins, um, and then testing different fluorophores. But it was quite stable, and um, I would say I had an extremely lucky and happy PhD time. And most other PhD students always said, you cannot complain, just go home. <laughs> and I was lucky, yes. So how, how did you find moving to Switzerland? Um, I would say retrospectively, it was a great time. Um, we, but we were staying in this community of international PhD students. So I think, so we were at the, in the French speaking part of Switzerland, which was good because you can learn that language. <laughs> Whereas moving to the Eastern part of Switzerland would have given me some difficulties in a common, local communication, I believe. Um, and yeah, we were, I think it was a great time because we were such a good community and of different PhD students um, enjoying the time at the lake in the evening, going for hiking in the mountains. I'm personally not a huge skier, so that part I skipped <laughs> most of the weekends. But um, being able to swim in the Lake of Geneva in the evening was just fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, one of my quick fire questions for you is actually slightly different to most guests, which was sun, sea or snow? What I like? Yeah. What's C your preference? C. C. See, I wasn't. I wasn't sure, but. Uh, yeah. No. 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 I'm. Um. I grew up on the beach of the Baltic Sea. Um. And from my window, I could see directly the waves when doing homework after school. <laughs> and uh, that's so to speak my homeland. And um, the sea. It always has been. Unfortunately, since I finished school, I moved around a lot, but never back to a seaside. So you did send me some pictures and this one is of you oh. holding a giant fish. So did you learn fishing when you were young then, when you lived by the sea? Yeah, but it was herring <laughs> at that time, they were that size. But it's probably where I um, really got um, the first passion for being at the sea and uh, going for fishing and just being on boats and um, I think when I was about 16, 17, for a short period of time, I was dreaming about um, making a license as a captain, but they looked at me and said, sorry, at least 180. So you're out of the picture. And uh, so chemistry, biochemistry it was instead. Yeah, and then centuries later, it feels, I remembered this passion about being at the sea or at the waterfront and going for fishing. And then there was also Rainer Peppercock, <laughs> whom I told um, some years ago, I'm going on a trip to Scandinavia. And he said, hold on. Next day, he came here uh, with a fishing rod and some gear and said, this you take with you. And it's Rainer style. And I said, well, uh, we're going with a very small car. I'm not sure this all fits. And it was tiny. I mean, it was really a tiny 
um, equipment, how do you say, um, package. Yeah. Um, and we tried a little bit. We got hooked that summer, and next year the gear was that size. So it filled half of the car, and now we are skipping the trip with the camping. We directly um, go to Lapland and then mainly for fishing, salmon and pike. So, so your ideal holiday is up in the... In the north when it rains a little bit, 11 degrees, and yes, and we are going in two weeks. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so it's a lot of sunlight then. Yes, but in August, you can see it every day, how the day shortens. Um, in early August or mid of August, you have still have sun until 10-ish, half past 10-ish, and then it comes back at three o'clock. Whereas end of August, it's, it's down to nine o'clock, eight o'clock already in the evening. So it really changes during August, September a lot. And so what other passions, what other outside of work interests, hobbies do you do? Uh, global bioengineering is a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have guinea pigs. <laughs> I don't know. So we have five guinea pigs. I think that brought us really through the COVID times. Um, and otherwise, uh, yeah, Eurobioimaging, global bioimaging, all of this as free Eric landscape doesn't leave that much time for hobbies. So you got five guinea pigs. This could be very revealing. What are their names? Uh, Molly, like Molly Malone. Yeah. Winston, like Winston Churchill. They are the two parents. And then we have three little ones, but they are now also um, almost three years old. Actually, it's their birthday today, the 4th of August. Okay. Um, just thinking about it. Um, that's Emily, Matilda, and um, Ernestine. Because we thought it's an he and call it Ernesto, and then the vet said, no, it's good. <laughs> so I, I was going to ask another question, which is, uh, who's been an inspiration or who you've been your inspirations throughout your career? And so obviously, Raina Peppercock has inspired you to become a fisher person again. And so yeah. you've taken up fishing. Who else would you say, uh, inside or outside life, has been your inspirations? Um, so definitely... Since I started with uh, Eurobiomaging, there were two persons I looked up to. Um, one was quite close. Um, that was Jan Ellenberg, or is Jan Ellenberg. Um, and I was really inspired how he pictured Eurobiomaging on, um, on its values, what, how he saw the values. And that never changed. So we had many changes over the year when it came to procedures or political settings. And, Probably everyone has heard that the early years were quite a stormy weather for everyone involved. But because of having this very clear vision and also the mission, what we are supposed to achieve for the community and never lost sight on that one, uh, we made it, I would say. So clearly that guidance um, was something I'm still looking up to. And then there's the second person that's uh, Dame Janet Thornton. Um, you might know her from Amble EBI. She used to be uh, the director at that time and also the first director for Alex here. And I was really inspired by her personality, how she was navigating this extremely complex landscape of science policy in Brussels, but also with the member states. And so I was, every time I was meeting her, I, I learned a lot from with, a, how, with this very light, charming touch, never loud voice, she still achieved everything. And again, she had this very clear vision that was based on values. So those two people, I think, in the um, professional life. Um, otherwise, yeah, I, I think that's it. Okay. <laughs> so, so you talk about difficult times or stormy weather and everything else. We say throughout your whole career, the biggest challenges you've had is during the Eurobioimaging early days or in your postdoctoral or undergraduate days. What's career-wise, what's been the most challenging or difficult time? Hmm. Um, I think those early years in Eurobioimaging, because although I knew we are kind of what we want to achieve is the right thing. 
but then um, the discussions could be very hard. And I think the peak was really when in one of the steering boards, someone named me the evil project manager. And the only thing I had done was take minutes <laughs> in a very detailed way. Um, Does that mean Jan was blaming you for everything? No, 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 no. He, he got to the same meeting. He was called, and you are, you are a biologist. <laughs> so, so we both got our compliments in that meeting. And on the flight back uh, from that meeting, we didn't say much. But when the stewardess came, we both said beer. <laughs> <laughs> they were serious in their comments then yes yes so biologists oh, it wasn't a tongue-in-cheek humorous thing say or oh, the evil project manager and you're no, no 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 that was meant and it was um we were still um building translational bridges across communities those were the early days <clears throat> so how okay besides hitting the bottle and drinking beer on a flight uh, <laughs> how, did, how did you how did you overcome those challenges um we had the longer breath <laughs> you know as i say i think because of knowing what the values were and what could what eurobiomaging could achieve for the research community and that this was not about us or our personal careers that this was much bigger um i think we just kept on board and often the other people were often involved because they thought that's an opportunity for their own career or their own research and Therefore, eurobanging just takes too long, needs too much in personal investment, also during evenings and during weekends and during the family time. I mean, I think all of the families involved also up to, until today, they suffer, <laughs> they suffer. And I think you can ask all of them and they know too much for their taste about eurobanging and uh, how we all achieve this. So, so I'm gonna take you back way back now because we can see where you've ended up uh and, and the difficulties and challenges which you probably never signed up to because not realizing that they would be <laughs> at that point when you were a young girl so 10 maybe around sort of that young age what did you was it, i think you've already talked was it what did you want to be was it a skipper or were there other passions that you wanted to be no, no actually um it was already when I was eight years old, my older brother had just started studying chemistry and he was the first person in our family going to the university. And that was in the um, 80s, late 80s. And we were asked at school, um, so what our family is doing. And I was like, yeah, my brother's studying chemistry. And they all went, eee, oh. <laughs> because it was the time of the first wave of awareness for environmental issues and chemistry was dirty rivers and dying trees and i was so offended by this next day i went to school and said i also will become a chemist and everyone went no 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 you are a girl you should not do that also at home i i was like, girl. no no not chemistry and that um made me quite stubborn i'm not a stubborn person um but in that moment, I decided I will study chemistry. I don't know. And then um, over, the, over the years, um, it stayed. But then we had this exercise at the public. It's a public place where all students have to go to learn about what pro job profiles are out there, what professions are out there. And then they have a full shelf of all these catalogs where you can see what's, yeah. what's what. And um, I pulled out the folder reading biochemistry because I thought, oh, sounds interesting. And then the lady working at this uh, public place, she passed by and she said, you can't put this back, you will not make it. And she didn't know me, she didn't know anything about me. And I was, th that was again this moment where I thought, okay, let's go for it. I will study very hard during my uh, last two years of school to, to make the cut. And I can still decide against it, but I will show this lady that in principle I can do it. And of course, I also like the topic, but um, I think that was one of the moments where um, I wanted to show, no, I can do it. So, so actually I asked you who, who have been some of your inspirations. And ironically, I would argue that your classmates and, I was small. <laughs> and that person who told you to put it back on the shelf were probably very inspirational. Uh, in, in a motivational yeah. 
Basically, it's 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 quite. I think these these little moments, and you, you I I think when I when I look at my children, thinking oh, I want to influence them, it's got to be the right place, right time, right sentence. That just, yeah, yeah. It's sometimes just a second that drops it, and then yeah, it, it just for whatever reason they grab hold of that and that and it stick and that that just drives them. It's just in the back of their head always, and I think that's a really good example. Yeah, okay. maybe. So, okay, so you wanted to be a chemist and a skipper. Uh, you went into biochemistry because you're going to show them that you can do biochemistry. And, and now you're management, arguably. So how, wh why the change into, uh, out of the wet lab and into a, yeah. ask me who's actually quite a lot of management these days, but, but why the change? How did you make that change? Um, so I think that happened during the postdoc um, time. So. I, after my PhD, as I said, which was really, really fantastic time, I packed up the fluorophores and the fusion proteins, and I came to EMBL with this new technology. But I came out of a bioorganic chemistry environment, and I had little clue about biology. <laughs> so I ended up at Amber in this fantastic environment, um, but I suddenly realized, okay, they're not developing technologies here, they are asking questions. And I was not super used to that. And that was for me a steep learning curve. And that was also the time where I figured um, maybe I'm done cut out for another job or another profession and not becoming a PI for cell biology. And I think already after the second year, I decided um, whatever comes next, it, will be, it won't be a second postdoc. And then I was looking a little bit around and it was this time in 2006, 2007, when there was a new profession coming up in Germany at the um, universities and public research institutes for um, science management. They even were already publishing first weekend courses or other opportunities. And the first time I saw the title science manager, I thought that's me. I don't know why it was, I just, I just saw the title and said, okay, I'm going to apply here. And I remember how I went excitedly through the lab to Jan's office. And said, this is where I'm going to apply. And he looked rather disappointed in that moment. That was three years before Eurobamaging started. I was like, okay, if you say so. Um, and he supported my application um, to uh, the Heidelberg University for this position. And that's how it started and was learning on the job. So I never did any classes or um, I never went to any of those weekend seminars because it was really happening on the job. And um, after two and a half years, I must admit at that position, I had learned everything I could. And I came to a point where I said, okay, this for another 30 years uh, might become boring. Mm -hmm. And that was super good timing because um, a PhD student who was just finishing um, had a poster with us in our department downtown. And she said, actually, Jan was wondering if you know someone who would be interested in managing an EU project for him. And I was like, well, okay, I can ask around. And she had asked this question so indirectly that I did not consider it might have been a direct question. So I asked around, <laughs> I called Jan and I said, sorry, no one's interested. <laughs> and um, then Elisa came back to me and said, I think you got the question wrong. <laughs> and then I called Jan again. So maybe we can have a chat about what kind of EU project you mean. And he told me three minutes about your imaging. And I said, yes, I will apply. And, and not look back since that's 2009. That, so that conversation was 2008. And Jan was also not sure if I'm the right person because he knew this is quite a big story for him, but also for EMPL and it has to work out. Um, so he sent me to the European Strategy Forum research, for Research Infrastructures Conference in Paris in December 2018 as a sneak preview to, to see if I like what I see and if I can make sense of what, out of what I will learn and hear at this huge political conference where you had mainly representatives from research ministries, especially from the French one. And so you had to go really in a suit and nicely dressed and um, 
it was a different world than anything that I had seen before, but I was into it. I saw it, I said, I like this. Um, yep, I want to put imaging here one day among all these big physical facilities, fusion reactors, um, ice vessels, you name it, and imaging should have its place here. And I went back to Jan and said, I still want to apply. It was a big risk though, because it, it can't have been a long-term contract. No, it was always hand to mouse, um, but it worked out. And I think I personally, I didn't think about one that one too often. I just hoped for the best and it worked out. So, so, so now it's a sustainable post. So, so you've got stability now? Not stable, stable. No, no. It's um, still the directorate in Eurobimaging um, is hired for five years. And then it's up to the Eurobimaging board to decide uh, so they will reopen the positions and then it's up to the board to decide what they do with that. If we apply again or if we don't apply again, or I think that's in the future. Wow. But I, mean, I, I hope that Eurobiomaging becomes a, a sustainable... Eurobiomaging is fine. It's just that um, the leadership uh, will have a turnover as well as... So the staff, that depends a little bit on where they are uh, located. At the EMBL, we are running under EMBL contracts. At the University of Torino, they are running under University of Torino or CNR contracts. And in Finland, they are running under the Eurobimaging Eric contracts. That's probably the most stable because they are, um, it's, the Eric can make the rules. But for the leadership, the directorate, it's um, in the statutes, um, the term of the fixed term. So this post started pretty much as just yourself. How big a team do you have today? Uh, from Monday on, we are 10 in the Biohub. And in Torino, it's about three to four. And in Toku, it's about six to seven these days, I would guess, yeah. And, and uh, you, know, you mentioned a lot, a lot of, I, I know from previous discussions, a lot of those who are on shorter term contracts as well. So they're going to get, worried about their futures uh, you know will it be refunded will there be the money will, will I have a job in six months time when it's coming up towards the end of a contract so you must have had a good flux of staff and how do you how do you manage that when you get a lot of staff leaving as you're coming towards the grand end and having a whole new lot of staff coming in that haven't got that knowledge that the others have bought that's a challenge that is still ahead but um I'm really trying to be very transparent and fair and forward-looking in this. So um, we are um, at the, still in the early days and most of the staff, or at least, yeah, most of the staff is hired on contracts that are linked to Eurobimaging Eric. So they will not finish in six months time. And those few positions that are really linked to external project funding, they just started, um, but they are also aware of this. Um, but we are so extremely successful right now by um, applying for external funding that we rather have the opposite problem, that we have too few staff and we are still in the growing phase, uh, although we are running out of desk space. <laughs> so we have yeah, more people than desks um, at the moment. But you, I, I, so if I'm thinking back to your original team where there was three or four of you, yeah, how many of those are left? All, except Ooh. myself. Yeah, so um, that was just uh, around the first year of Corona that um, in, the, in December 2019, we were officially launched finally after 10 years of yep. planning as Eurobimaging Eric. And it was big hooray and there was champagne and now the future looked bright. Um, in end of January, I learned that the first team member was looking for a career step um, and had an offer on the table for becoming head of something. And I said, sorry, I can't um, compete with this because we are still more like a startup. Um, and that very first time um, I was not prepared because it was my, the, the first time it happened to me that someone said in the middle of the running contract and um, still some time to go, um, sorry, I, I already found something. And then I was very lucky to run into another person who then could take over this position very quickly and super efficiently. So there was no 
no problem. And then two more people left during the Corona time for private reasons. Yeah. Uh, because the family uh, moved from one country to another country. And um, in one case also, because they were more interested to see what the industry world has to present um, after working for academia for some time. In the end, um, I think if someone had told me in January 2020 at the in very early days what would happen with all people leaving and corona hitting, <laughs> probably I might have quit. But um, I learned you, you can survive uh, no matter what. And things will work out and other exciting new people will join who have other strengths but have strengths. And I have a fantastic team here. And they are just the best. That, of, of course, you have to say that because they're listening. No, no, no. I, I, I truly mean <laughs> that's, that's um, yeah, they're really the best. No, I've, I've, I've met most of them and they are really good. Uh, yeah, I, I think many of, maybe also the people who might be listening to the podcast um, might have met those people at the Elmi. Um, and I think you can all see that. Now, thinking of Elmi, what is your favorite scientific conference? Elmi. <laughs> and, and is this picture LB or is it somewhere else? Is this you? Oh, oh, okay, okay. This is, no, this is my second. Uh, so in private life, that would be my most preferred, um, not conference. It's a dance festival, a swing dance festival, Lindy Hop, um, which happened to take place every year in June in Heidelberg before Corona. It's called The Chase. Uh, the title is based on a certain move that you can make. And that really has been a passion. Sorry, I forgot about that one because since Corona started and since Eurobiomaging got in this very intense phase, I haven't danced a step in the past three years. And I'm so sorry about this. I really You were Elmi. And I'm sure you were on the dance floor. I know you were on the dance floor at Elmi. Yeah, I, I was on the dance floor, but there was no Lindy Hop music. Yeah, okay. Well, you could have asked a DJ. Yeah, next time I will. I will. No, this, uh, the Lindy Hop is something that um, I started in 2012 and um, it hit me. That was really, I can only recommend it to everyone who loves jazz music or uh, loves dancing. It's wonderful dance. It's very flexible. You don't have those fixed rules. It's about reading your partner's um, face. If they like the music, interpret the music in that very moment, improvise. It's fun. I, I've not tried it, so something else I might have to go away and try at some point. Well, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I just just watch it on YouTube, a few videos, and of course, don't try to to um, copy what they're doing there at the championships. But um, it's really fun. It's a very social dance. You're also not um, going with one partner for all the time, but you go for two songs, and then you change the partner. And by this, you get to know many, many people um experience a lot of different dance styles and it's a flow for me i, I can see why coronavirus stopped it for a, for a couple of years if you're constantly changing partners and dancing close so i can see it's maybe not the best environment <laughs> for that sort of thing i've got to mention you mentioned earlier on in the conversation i didn't bring it up at the time that you went to france or the, the, the when you're looking at the job and went to the, the high end sort of political meeting you had to dress up. I noticed you in a shirt and a waist jacket. Today. Ah, <laughs> yes, um, that's for you, Peter. <laughs> because I, um, I also like, um, how do you say? Waist jacket. Waist jacket. I like them a lot. And but at work, I never have the opportunity really. It's, I use it also for Lindy Hop. And um, yesterday when um, I was, watching one of the microscopist podcasts, I saw this and I said, okay, let's go for it. I'm glad I chose to wear it today. I don't wear it in the February podcast. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering if I should send you a hint, but then I let it be. I, I, I've got to say, I love a waist jacket. It's just, just now you get a shirt, it looks formal, but it's casual as well with a pair of jeans. It's yeah, yeah. exactly. Nice. You're never dressed wrongly. So it's, it's always perfect. So yeah, I was quite quite chuffed when he looked. I thought, oh my God, I'm looking in the mirror. Not literally. <laughs> It was very similar to it, uh, for sure. It's a possible uh, reference. At, um, you know, let's go to some quick fire questions. Uh, 
I've done up on. So Mac or PC? Mac. McDonald's or Burger King? Ooh. <laughs> That's neither, isn't it? Neither. <laughs> okay, you go to a conference, you, you're, 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 a, you're invited speaker at a conference, you get taken out for dinner. What would be your favourite food that they could serve in front of you? So, but not at McDonald's or Burger King, but somewhere no, else. No, no, just your favourite. What would be the best food someone could put in front of you to eat when you go, when you're invited out? Asian vegetarian food. Okay, and what would be the worst food that they could put in front of you? Bacon. Bacon? Yeah. Especially when it's not cooked well, then I can't, I just, that's a childhood trauma. Food poisoning? No, no, it's just um, I can't swallow it. I I just don't. It doesn't work. So not a rash decision. That's a really bad. No, 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 it's just not working. <laughs> uh, tea or coffee? Both. So in the morning, first a cup of tea with milk, and then the coffee is already cooking on the stove, and then coffee after that. And then evening. Beer. Uh, the next question was going to be beer or wine. So, beer, I presume. Yeah, beer. I think. Chocolate or cheese. Chocolate. Uh, dark or milk. Dark. How dark? Can be pretty dark. Seventy-five, eighty. Okay, that's yeah, it's good darkness. Yeah. I, I haven't asked this before. Warm or cold? Chocolate. So room temperature or fridge? Warm. Yeah, for, for dark, yes, but for other chocolates. Yeah, because then really... <laughs> yeah. Book or TV? That's I guess. Yeah, 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 the nice thing about dark chocolate is, yeah, lack of sugar in it, well. Yeah. At least. Book or TV? So the right answer would be book, but I think the answer that fits more or is more realistic these days is TV. And um, do you have any TV vices? Anything that uh, you shouldn't tell us about because it's just an appalling tasting TV, but you're about to tell us about? Yeah, you mean something I watch and I shouldn't? Uh, just really trashy or just... I don't know. Um, what I'm currently watching, and it's a bit older, I understand, is um, Borgen, which is this Danish um, yeah. production um, set in the um, yeah, political landscape of Denmark about 10 years ago. And I must say, I really adore the main actor and how she plays that role as a politician and as a woman. So, yeah, that's not trash, but... Um, that's what I have recently been watching. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. In fact, a recent podcast had a very similar answer. That is what is, what is these Scandi dramas. And I noticed you, 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 you love going up to. Yes, I love that. <laughs> yeah, but the Danish language is special. <laughs> if you could live anywhere, where would you live? Um, I guess that would be Lapland. Yeah. <clears throat> That was interesting question. Just simply, what about your favorite film? My favorite film of all times. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not a bit cheesy, but it's Out of Africa. Okay, really? Yeah, I, um, I just love this opening scene. I had a farm. I had a farm in Africa. I saw that when I was eight years old the first time, and I was just like, wow, <laughs> I want to go there. But you choose to go to Lapland instead. I can see the uh, <laughs> some things obviously haven't influenced you throughout your whole life to, to aspire to there. What about your favourite Christmas film? Oh, I think that's German um, production from the 70s, 80s. Um, I'm not sure this is known outside Germany. It's um, done by the comedian Loriot who already passed away. Um, I mean, he was in his 60s, 70s when he did this, and that's um, a bit more slapstick stuff, but it's famous in Germany, and you just quote half a sentence out of that one, and everyone knows. It sounds good. See, Brit, we just don't grab that sort of thing. It doesn't come back over. But it sounds like it, it should be yeah, really I think it's the, 
the humor is based a lot on the language. It would be difficult to catch it translation. by translation, yeah. Okay. Uh, night owl or early bird? Early bird. Okay. And favorite item of clothing? Oh, waist jacket. Okay. Fair enough. And I, I didn't ask Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Ah, it's not the right answer. But <laughs> I'll forgive you. <laughs> I, I, I've asked this to most guests. I, I haven't done a straw poll. I'd love to know. How many have gone Star Trek? How many have gone Star Wars? Quite a lot of, yeah, Star Wars is gaining popularity again. Uh, it's more digestible when you're very busy because you, you manage Star Wars during a weekend, but you never watch, uh, manage Star Trek during a weekend. Uh, that's true, but you can pick it up and drop it, though. If you okay. realise. I, I, I mean, I should try. Uh, and Picard, I, I actually, yeah, I've got to pick that back up again with my son. You send me some other... Can I add another favourite movie? Because that I might even like that one more, and it's what, so close to the microscopist, the Godfather. Ah, ah. part one. I don't know how many times I watched that. that is, yeah, all good films. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you sent me some other pictures. Uh, so, would you like to describe? I presume this is a global bioimaging. Meeting? Yes, um, so that is the um, Global Bumaging Management Board um, assembled in Singapore in September 2019. And that was the last time that Global Bumaging Management Board met in person. And I'm very much looking forward to meet all these guys in person again in Uruguay, Montevideo in September this year. Yeah, and actually I've just seen that picture of Graham Wright and I owe him an email from earlier today. <laughs> Maybe I should quickly skip over that one. And this picture. That is also global bioimaging. Um, it's in 2006, no, in 2017 in September um, in Bangalore at the National Center for Biological Sciences. So it was hosted by Krishna and his colleagues. It was a fantastic meeting. I, I haven't asked, what is the difference between global bioimaging and neurobiomaging? Um, very good that you asked because I always like to tell the difference. Um, so neuroimaging is an infrastructure you can touch, even if it's distributed <laughs> over Europe. But finally, when you get to the node, you can touch the instrument, you can talk to the people. Whereas global biomaging is a network made by people for people. And in this case, it's um, staff working at facilities, managers of infrastructure, and it's building capacities and networking each other around the globe to, to help each other with challenges, but also to, to train each other on um, items that, for example, core directors have to deal with. So that's it's a network, a meeting platform. Yeah, and, and the, you're starting with training as well, is that right? As in uh, mentorships or? Yes, we have, we have the um, Global Bumaging Training Program since 2020 in place, um, which is run by GLAB here in the team. And we are offering job shadowing program where we have travel grants for people to go from one from their facility to another facility in another continent to stay for two, three weeks, learn from each other. They can even turn this around that um, they um, that the facility stuff, let's say from Europe, goes then to Australia and back. And um, we have the virtual training portal where you can um, find a lot of um, training resources already made, produced in global bumaging, but also by external submission. Uh, we have international training courses, and now we're also coming to a phase where we can offer them in person as originally planned. Up until recently, we changed into virtual courses. Um, and it's all aiming, the, the audience for the training activities are staff working at imaging facilities. Mm -hmm. it's a I, which I think is essential and really good. And actually, I'm going to show one of my pictures. I've not done this before because I think you'll like this. And it was the irony, actually, that just before I went away on holiday a short while ago, I realised the lab when this loads up. Aha. So this, this is a lot of my lab. Most of my yes. team are here. But actually, this is uh, Andrea, Andrea that's, that's, uh, from Cambridge that came up as a mentee. So she runs a core facility. Mm -hmm. down in Cambridge so she came up as a mentee we have Jodie uh 
just here. Mm -hmm. Andrea here, who was the mentee, sort of peer to peer mm -hmm. about core facilities. Jodie's a PhD student who's doing an internship in the lab. And then from the local school, Fulford School, uh, we had the next student who's actually just coming for a, a couple of weeks placement uh, in a core facility. So I thought it was really cool that we had someone who's not started university yet. We had someone who's doing a PhD and we have someone who's actually now mature in, in job, in post, as it were, all at the same time, which uh, I can take little credit for. That's my team who really look after them. And OK, so Andrew came. I spent most of my time with peer to peer on that side. And then uh, Claire, Karen, Graham, Grant, Joe and the other Karen. God, I, think, I hope I haven't missed anyone. were helping pass on their knowledge and expertise to the others and, and still going. And that's wonderful. And I really like that you have these different levels of expertise and training all around at the same time. It, it was it was an odd occasion to have them all at once. It was a bit foolish, yeah. but it was like, oh my goodness, we have to capture this moment. <laughs> and, and, and we had that formal picture, but there was also the, the coffee time, a lot of dialogue. So they got to see the lighthearted side and the more serious side uh, of the lab as well. And I think it's quite good when, when the younger ones can also see the more senior posts and, and just to get a flavor of those meetings. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we invite them into one when we when we're meeting clients for the first time, people who are using us to come in, even though a lot of it may be over their head because it gets technical. Mm -hmm. They get a feel for the the dialogue, how people talk to each other and, you know, how it's very friendly and collaborative. And hopefully that will inspire them to move forward. I, I certainly know that the, the internship uh, is loving the post. So I came back on holiday today, saw it and just see in her eyes the excitement and it's not something that she probably thought about doing as a career and I'm quite sure I'm, I know that now she's thinking well when I finish my PhD actually this could be a career path for me yeah yeah it's, it's many times it's about inspiration right and that's what I hope that Eurobiometric can also achieve um, even if it's not officially a mission but that just by the enthusiasm and the spirit that people are showing that we can have this inspiration or be this inspiration maybe for others sometimes. And that's what I'm looking for also in people when I'm hiring. Um, I, you know, I, I really want to see that um, sparkle in the eyes of about the idea, about the concept of being there to help others doing the best they can with their research. And taking yourself out of that line. So it's not about our career anymore. It's really about enabling others. And if I don't see that spark, I don't care how senior that person is or what the recommendation letters say. It's just um, that person will not fit. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I, I actually, I was, again, we actually had one of the core facilities in Prague come and visit today, this <laughs> morning. Uh, yeah, this morning into lunchtime. And, and he was great. Yeah, he's such a good fit for that type of role because and we, we spoke about the different roles in core facilities and you have those that do those that, but it's those who inspire those who can see the vision those who like yourself take it home you know yeah. you don't deliberately take it home you take it home because you're passionate about it and you're you know it consumes your weekends I, I would say at that point it's not just a job it's a passion you know, because if it's a job it's too tiring it's too exhausting and um, of course, um, also being enthusiastic is, can eat a lot of energy. Uh, but for example, you asked me, which is my favorite conference? And when I go to Elmi, of course, I'm super tired, especially after the Thursday. Um, but it gives you triple times back. And this is where I get the energy then for the next 51 weeks um, to go ahead, because I've seen how much our work can benefit the community. Um, how we can make a difference, especially in the early days. You might remember when I had to go up there on that stage every Thursday just ahead of lunch and tell them, hey, hi guys, not yet there, but next year. Yeah. <laughs> I did this for so many years without delivering uh, that I even ha had to come up with jokes. And uh, um, yeah, you remember maybe the 2019 presentation. And finally, when we were there, there was no Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I, yeah, it was a tough gig at times. That, yeah, that, it was. And um, 
people were also, of course, starting to doubt that we will ever make it. And yeah. I, I, and I think a lot of credit, not just to yourself, but also to Jan. Uh, yes. I, I, so I did a podcast with Jan as well, and he talks about the, the politics at, at senior levels and the, and the difficulties uh, within that. Or... Biologist. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, he's just a biologist. That was and, happening in but, one but of Actually, he was. He is he a is. biologist. And, and he's proud. <laughs> no one trained him to deal with politicians. And, and it's, I think the political world is a bear pit. It's, it's really aggressive. It's really, there's motives that you don't appreciate to start with. And I think, yeah, this actually, you should just listen to Jan's, anyone listening now, listen to Jan's podcast, because there's so much good advice in there yeah. of, of dealing with these things and the importance of dealing with it. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy job at all. Oh, and th that's what I meant that, um... I learned so much from Jan by just watching in those also more difficult discussions and meetings, how he reacts to aggression or false arguments or just some people saying, stop, I don't want this, what you're saying, I will do it nevertheless what I want. And for hours, he would go back even after long days at six o'clock in the evening after we had already the meeting for eight hours, he would go back to the principal repeated in his calm voice. Everyone wanted to kill him likely for that voice already. Just, just going back, bringing it back to the principle. And we had this recipe of developing transparent procedures, transparent criteria, independent evaluation. And that was the recipe for Europe Imaging. So no matter what we did, if it was choosing technologies to come on board, or if it's choosing the facilities to come on board, um, or talking to the ministries, transparency, procedures, criteria, tear them up front, and then independent evaluation. And then you are waterproof for almost any storm. I, I think defendable for any storm, but unfortunately reasoned arguments weren't always, not a scientific, politics is not a scientific world where a good reasoned, like a grant application, you put it in and it's judged. Uh, I mean, sometimes you come to a point where you have then to take out other weapons <laughs> from <laughs> the cupboard. But um, luckily, that was not that often the case. And now we are sailing smooth waters because of the super well preparation from uh, the Jan, but also the other senior people that were involved in the early days. So I took over something that was well-prepared, waterproof, and is easy to sail, so to speak. And I, I'm very grateful for that. Okay, we have just gone over the hour mark. So my apologies for not keeping this on time. But I have to ask, because you love your job, you're passionate about your job. We, we've, we've talked a lot about some of the difficulties, but what's been some of the most fun times that you've had? Um, I think when you... So for me, the best part was um, in the early years, we were going country to country to country to talk to the national imaging communities to get them on board. And they were not there yet. I mean, there was no Spanish biomaging, France biomaging, maybe in the early days, that was one of the first. Um, but I had this so many times, probably more than 20 times, I walk into the room in the morning, there was maybe one person in that country that knew about your imaging and the concept that was usually the local organizer and invited me. And then you had 30 skeptical people sitting there in front of you, all a bit tired and like, okay, why do I waste my time for what? And then I started presenting your imaging. Then you had 30 minutes of difficult, skeptical questions, full of concerns about this cannot be true. What? is she talking about and then it said click and then you saw the first smiles smiles on some faces and then more and then during the lunch break they were approaching me saying this is cool yeah let's do this and in the evening when i was on my flight back you had another country bioimaging danish bioimaging swedish bioimaging you name it and it was really that was cool that was I, 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 I will say i was one of those skeptics in the early days <laughs> uh, so, so, so I, I would say it took a lot of twisting to convince me that this would work. I, 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 I am now there, but it took a long time to get me there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, I, but, I get it. That it's, um, 
I heard many, many arguments and I still remember one of those meetings where I was sweating a lot because the arguments, it was um, a debate, a real debate. And that was in Hungary. <laughs> I, I, I think the idea, I, I, I was always, York, we are an open access facility, always have been. So my, my argument was, why do we need it? I, but now, mm. I, and now I, I've thought this for a lot of things. Why do we need it? Why do we need it formalized? And then when you see what the, once it's formal, just how many more people it brings. Yeah, and also- It empowers people to know that they can do stuff. And I think yeah. that's really powerful and something that I'd, I'd underestimated, certainly. Uh, so to, there you are. So I think it's a great initiative. Uh, we just need to get UK there and we're coming. Oh, yeah, so um, I had hoped for, <laughs> but let's do not preempt anything. Yes. Right. Anyway, Andrew, we are up to time. Everyone, thank you for listening to the microscopies. If you've liked it, please subscribe to whichever channel you're listening to it uh, on. Andrew, you've been great. And Jan Ellenberg, one of the guests, please go and listen to that one because that is so close to what we've been talking about today. But Andrew, yourself, I think, is an inspiration to many people. And I think it's also great to see that you can go through determinedly through your chemistry, to your biochemistry, and change careers but still have the same or even greater influence now on the scientific community than you may have done if you'd have carried on down the postdoctoral route. So there are other careers out there that I think are equally empowering, passionate, fun, uh, and can still have a massive effect on science and helping many, many people instead of maybe just one research area. Antia, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Peter. It was That's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.